it's becoming widely known that expressing your feelings through the written word can help you to heal and grow. But it's not just when times are hard. Documenting the good times as well as the bad is a great way to truly understand yourself from moment to moment, to capture your emotions like a photograph so that they don't get repressed or forgotten. I'm not much of a writer or a poet, but I've been lately journaling a lot, and it's brilliant for recognizing thought patterns and developing self-awareness. I couldn't think of a better person to chat to about this. Introducing my friend of over 10 years, John Iredell. And I recorded this show remotely as he lives all the way in Brazil. John has an incredible way with words. And although he has never kept a journal, he's been writing deeply and powerfully about the landmark moments in his life since he was about 14 years old. Now at 48, he says that much of his writing has love as its theme and can be categorized as a yearning for love from others and a need to earn love from himself. We talk about the crippling effects of body dysmorphic disorder and how we might always look for the beauty in the world, no matter how imperfect it may be. And John takes us on a mini journey through his life of love so far, with poetry as his vehicle. Along the way, we discuss the power of self-belief, the things that can be achieved if you have the courage to go your own way, and the one book that everybody should write, even if they don't see themselves as a writer. A relationship coach, as well as a wordsmith, John also tells us about the addictive qualities of love, what you should always consider before you bring somebody into your life, and what you should never do when you find somebody you're attracted to. And finally, he leaves us with some lighthearted lines of poetry that we can send our Valentine this February 14th, though he does advise us to use them at our peril. And a wonderful piece of writing that emphasizes the themes of love that run through this podcast and will resonate with all of you creatives out there. So are you ready to be inspired? Let's go. So John, it's the Valentine special. Can you tell me about your journey in writing and how it's been influenced by love? Right, okay, well, my journey in writing has been a little more meandering than some of your other guests, that's for sure. They seem to have had a pathway and kind of stuck on that pathway right to the end. I've kind of come on and off of the pathway, it's fair to say. I'm like nearly 49 years old this year. And there's been various times in my life where I've got into writing and then life's kind of happened and I've gone off that path again. But definitely through the whole of that, love has been a major theme not just love for others and from others but a kind of journey or search for love for myself really they've been like the two major themes from others and for myself and so the book that i'm getting back to now like the main book i'm getting back to i'd say is very very much influenced by those two things and i'd also say it's a book that everybody should write you know because it's looking back at your life from the position you're in now. So it's not just looking back to learn lessons from it, it's looking back to appreciate it. And obviously doing that in the past can help you in the future. And, and I would say that there's definitely two influences when I think of this kind of book. And the first of them is the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Do you know that movie? I do. And obviously that's essentially about a guy who gets to see what the world was like or would be like if he wasn't in it. So he gets to appreciate his life that way and all the things he's done for others. And the other thing that influences it is the series, The Wonder Years. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah? I do. It yeah. was like Little Fred <laughs> Savage, it. do you remember? And like every episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically he was writing about his younger life. So he became a writer in the future, he was writing about his younger life. So he's essentially doing the same thing. And of course, every single episode, 
he learned something. He always had a moral at the end of the story. I mean, I learned a lot personally from watching the Wonder Years. Like Fred Savage shaped my life, basically. And so my book, I'd say it gets darker, but definitely at the, at the start of it, it's very much shaped by those kind of things. And you know, those films like My Girl, those whole kind of idyllic kind of girl next door relationships, you know? Because I had one of those myself. Um, actually, would you like to hear a bit about it? It's probably better to read a bit. It's amazing the things we remember, don't you think? Often they seem so trivial at the time. And yet looking back, our most vivid and easily accessible memories always seem to mark the landmark moments in our lives. Or at least they mark the beginning of the landmark era. Imagine though, if we remembered every moment, I wonder if it would be for better or worse. For example, doesn't it bring a smile to your face these days when summer barely begins until mid-August and then only comes in two days spurts to remember that when you were a child, the sun was always shining for the entire six-week holiday. To remember that you could have played outside every single day. And you probably did. And what about all those winter holidays when it always snowed around Christmas, even if not on the day? My memory is pretty terrible, really. I have a whole bunch of images in there, but very little explanation. The makings of a very good story in pictures, maybe, but with very few words to describe them. And then there's that thing where, as you go further and further into your past, the memories get more faded until eventually you reach that point where, as hard as you might try, you just can't say anything at all. For those moments, all you have left is a memory of a memory, I guess. I suppose then that around here somewhere live my earliest memories of childhood and a girl called Amy Pickett, who lived across the street. In a way, you could say that Amy was my very first girlfriend. And indeed she was. But that was long before I knew that you could bring those two words together. We'd been friends since birth, Amy and I. Our mums had been friends long before that. And so with us being roughly the same age and all, Amy was just a month or so older than me and living so close to each other, we must have spent a lot of time together when we were really young. I don't remember that time, of course. But I do remember that for many years after, you know, when we had more of a say in who we spent our time with, Amy and I remained the closest of friends, always the first to arrive at each other's birthday parties and always the last to leave. And that was despite the fact that we never went to school together. Amy, I also remember, had a couple of tortoises in her back garden. Well, tortoises, a rabbit, a coal bunker, and some rather delicious looking berries, you know, for the sake of completeness, and not as to sell Amy's garden short or anything. The berries became a kind of forbidden fruit to us for a while, forbidden by our parents, that is, who had told us repeatedly, apparently, that they weren't meant for eating. Turns out they were right, and we found that out the hard way after the shortest of Adam and Eve type moments in the bushes, a slightly longer Bonnie and Clyde type moment at the coal bunker, and a trip to the hospital, which lasted <laughs> long into the evening. Anyway, back to those tortoises. Or is it just tortoise? Whatever it is, she definitely had two of them, racing tortoises to us. Not the quickest, though, it has to be said, even by tortoise standards. But in Amy's opinion, they moved that slowly because they had such a long life ahead of them. Amy said, if we had such a long life ahead of us, then we wouldn't feel the need to rush anything either. She had further once told me that her tortoises sure she had it, yes, would still be alive long after we had grown up, had children of our own, and been buried in the ground. If nothing else then, I think that makes tortoises a pretty sound investment for a family pet. You could also start a race with them in the morning and keep checking in at your leisure. That's hours of fun for your buck. Or is that what we said about the rabbit? So there you go. So it's like really, <laughs> really idyllic look back at childhood, you know. I mean, it gets darker than that, but I did have this beautiful relationship with a girl across the road. We used to, we used to play this game. She had this crazy paving in her garden. And um, so obviously... Oh, I love things. that. Remember? Oh, it was so 80s, wasn't it? Crazy paving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to spend hours playing a game called Walking on the Cracks, which essentially was just walking around her garden on the cracks between the crazy paving and talking. I don't know what we spoke about, but obviously, you know, so much simpler times, you know. I mean, imagine doing that with anybody. It was such a simple time. I mean, when I, when I look back at my days in the 80s, you're right, it, was, it seemed to always be sunny for the six weeks and we'd be out playing on the, there was this big green 
and we were there and I used to I used to make obstacle courses out of like just whatever it was and it was a it was a gym and yeah. made up dances and it was so much fun and then over Christmas it was just constant carol singers and snow and and you do you look back on your life and it's I did it yeah I mean, that's how I guess you want to remember it. There are bits, there are dark bits to it. But when you look back in your past, you do pick out the bits that you're really, really grateful for. And I think that's a lot, that's something that people should do is there's always going to be moments in between the snapshots that you take with your Polaroids that are not so great. But those moments, they really do last. Those memories, even the ones that fade, you've still got those pictures. If you're lucky, you've got those pictures that you can go, Oh my God, I remember how life was back then because it is different now. Do you think it is different though now in life or do you think it's just the age we were at then? Like everybody's life at that age is the same. It's a good question. I think, I mean, speaking from a parent's perspective, going, dropping the kids off at the gate at school, it seems like life is that simple for them. That's good. So maybe that is how children perceive life is carefree, easy, fun. That'd be great. And it's when you get older that you start, yeah, that you start to, you start to get, you know, you get older and then you become fearful. I guess the more you see things and are aware of things on the news, the more you start to doubt the world you live in. But as a child, you're just fully immersed in those moments and I guess, completely ignorant to what's really going on, which I think is beautiful. Oh, be a kid again. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's when you get a little bit older, isn't it? Like, I mean, what about you when you're, because, you know, I'm obviously talking about Amy and I were friends who were like 11 or something like that in the end. But then you reach the teenage years. And I think in the teenage years, you get a little bit more shaped by society, you know, into, you know, what you should be, what you shouldn't be, that kind of thing. What about your relationships from, from that kind of time? Like, who were your posters on your wall? That, that kind of thing. Oh, God. If I could have had, thanks, Mum, a poster on my wall, <laughs> because she did not want me to mess up the wall. But if I could have, I was absolutely crazy about the gladiators. All of them. Right. All of them. Loved them all. That was the thing that I loved. I loved their power and their strength. And that's... I guess it was within a complete, it was a complete contrast from what I was wanting to do with my life. I wanted to be the, the ballerina, the really sort of sylph, elegant, light on her feet. But I really, really loved the power and the strength. I guess the contrast. I think me as a person, I do love a bit of contrast in my life. So when I was younger, anyone I did like, they were always people who were not linked to dancing. Okay. Because I liked, I I didn't want to be with anyone who was in the same industry because I liked to talk about other things when I wasn't doing that. If I was always talking about ballet, I was afraid that I would never really escape it. And growing up, I actually did date someone who was at the Royal Ballet School with me. And uh, it was massively distracting. <laughs> like I remember we had this um, sort of glass window that went alongside one of the studios. And I would stop dancing to wave at the guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you're at the Royal Ballet after school having to concentrate. And I was just there like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I was... <laughs> Forbidden fruit. <laughs> Do you know what? He was forbidden fruit. And we were actually told, you know, don't date, don't date this guy. I think he was a bit of a heartthrob of, of uh, the school. And indeed. He was like the Patrick Swayze. And he, oh, he was. Yes, he was lovely. And I found it a bit consuming because you are there with the guy dancing and then you're just talking about ballet. And like, I until now, I always thought of it as, it was just too much of the same. And then when I was so sucked into that relationship with someone who was also a ballerina, I, yeah, consumed is the right word. I could just not escape it. So I became so obsessed. I needed to have people that I can break away from. Like this is, this is my career and this is my romance. Very much had to divide the yeah. two. 
But my first love is ballet. I had um, God, mine was mine was separated in a, in a kind of different way. So towards the end of secondary school, I'd got teased a lot at primary school. I had these, oh. I had these kind of buck teeth that they stuck out a lot. I mean, my chin never got any sun, which on the bright side, but like I got, I got teased a lot, and um, that kind of stopped for a while in secondary school, and then it sort of started again in about the third year. Around about the same time, um, my parents had started taking us like these holiday camps, and it was a really weird thing. And, it, and for me, it was like a lesson in the power of self belief and confidence, because I would go to these holiday camps and I'd enter the dancing competition and I figured out I could dance. I mean, I won a Mars bar of break dancing when I was about 10, but other than that, and I would win three holidays. <laughs> and I was writing, one of the first things I ever started writing was stand up comedy. And I was writing my own comedy at like 14 years old to perform in these talent competitions. So I'm doing that. Wow. And I'm even like, you know, I'm playing, I was never good at sports at school. And I'm playing football, I'm playing badminton, and I'm good. And I'd go back to school, and I'd be terrible. And I realized that it's literally, like, that's how strong the power of belief is. You know, and this whole thing, and you probably got this a lot in ballet as well, the difference between not wanting to do something wrong, in case people teased you or said something about it, and playing it safe, and just doing what you want to do without second-guessing yourself, and having that belief is absolutely huge, you know. And I, I can, and especially looking back, you know, I, I can, I can totally see that. And and my writing kind of separated in two ways as well. So, like I say, I'm writing stand-up comedy for holiday, and you know, I'm really popular there, and I'm outgoing at school because I'm getting teased a lot in most lessons. I'm quiet. I'm not saying anything. I stopped going out with friends at night and the weekend because I wanted to kind of escape from that. So then I'm writing mm. stuff um, that's just totally different to the kind of life I was living in a holiday camp. Obviously, that's just for a few weeks a year, even when I was winning the holidays. Um, shall I read you a little bit? from? Because I've got stuff. This is a great thing. I never kept a diary. I never liked photos because, you know, because of the teasing, I think. I kind of bore that, you know, it got a lot worse the way I was with the camera. But I think that the great thing about writing is that you capture emotions. So when you look back, you're not just looking at an image and kind of trying to remember how, how that felt. You know, you've literally got this stuff written down and you know exactly how you felt. And, and I find that great these days as well because I don't feel the same way. And if I hadn't written stuff back then, I would find it hard to write about. I would find it hard to put myself back in those shoes because you know i like to think in a way I'm, I'm not on my final destination like you know we're talking about me getting back into writing stuff but as far as kind of mental state and psychologically i feel that i'm at a nice destination and, and of course that's also the best time to look back at your life because you can say to yourself well, that was all part of the journey you know when you're on the journey and you're not happy with where you are it's easy to be kind of like i was embarrassed of the way I felt. And I think that's why I did go inside myself and I did start doing a lot of writing for myself. I never showed it to anyone. So it was like a cry for help, just a really quiet. You know, like nobody knew about it. So, you know, I'm sitting in my room, I'm not going out and I'm writing stuff like this. So this is from when I was about, I'd say 14, 15 years old. So this is called Little Star. The title, a lot of my writing, when I read it back, I know there's a lot going on in the background. And the reason this is called Little Star and it's about a star is because I was one person like performing on stage and things on holiday. And then I was this other person that wanted to be this little yeah. shining star. Maybe somewhere high up above is a tiny little star. A star who wasn't quite made with a true stunning glow, like all of the other stars. Chained to the overwhelming weight of difference, he is scorned by the brighter stars, and so he hides himself away from them. Buried so deeply inside the blackest of holes, he watches in proud yet sad adore, as the other stars parade their beauty against the flattering backdrop of the nightlit sky. The moon is their spotlight, their golden robes are oh so splendid, being nearly and widely acclaimed by critics the whole world over. Maybe, as he sits there and he weeps, 
Even his wounded tears are doomed to be lonely as they swim against the carnivorous undercurrent of the ravenous windswept rain. Maybe. He still holds out hope, though, that one day he will cry the tear that at last makes its way through the storm and with grace finds the cheek of that solitary someone who'll care. Maybe we all know in reality that his tears will always be shipwrecked as swashbuckling waves of the sky crash hard and fast against them. And his small yet perfectly formed little heart, that if given the chance would burn like the fire that for lovers can turn the coldest winter's day into the most smouldering of nights, will merely become a sparkle, alone and abandoned, lost and afraid beneath this splendorous vision of night. Or maybe, just sometimes it can be the tiniest and littlest of stars whose glow is most radiant and beautiful as it dances so high up above us. But then even if it could be, who in the world would look up there and notice? So I wrote that like when I was 14 or 15. You know, it's a real photograph, but a real photograph because it's emotion of exactly how I felt then. It's like a snapshot of exactly what was going on. The way that you write, my God, I think I was so away with the fairies, wanting to be a ballerina, wondering, like, just wanting to be physically my absolute best, that I would never have thought that way. And I find it really, really incredible that you could write in that way at that time in, in your life. So, it was so beautifully written, but so detailed, so descriptive, and so... Like, it really took me there into that moment of how you would have been feeling. But a normal 14-year-old person would be going, well, I'm feeling a bit shit today. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was really deep. I don't know where it came from because my mum and dad, they were they never wrote or anything. I don't know what influenced me. Um, I had times in my life where I kind of got little signs that I was on the right track because I never read a lot. And that wasn't a conscious decision at first. I just didn't enjoy reading. So I suppose it was in a way. But it became one. And what kind of happened was, so the teasing kind of led to a really bad place. I mean, it led to something called body dysmorphic disorder, which is where you kind of look in the mirror and you see a distorted version of yourself, but you don't know it's distorted. And, and that, what happened was I left school and you'd think, great, you know, I'm away from all that, you know, all the teasing and everything's gone. But then I realized that my biggest critic I couldn't get away from because that had become me. And it really, it overtook my life. You know, I'm watching, I'm watching tennis or snooker on the TV and I'm watching it, but I'm like, oh, his nose is a different size to mine or always oh, good looking, you know, not in a light sexual way, but just like whatever I did, I'm consumed, I'm comparing myself in that way, just on looks alone, on nothing else. And because I'm not leaving the house, things are getting dark and dark and darker. Like I remember I'm, I'm up looking in the mirror like a thousand times a day and I hated looking in the mirror. But, like I'm subjecting myself to that. And I started, I started having nightmares, you know, my nightmares, I couldn't get away from people teasing me. I made them up downstairs. I mean, again, I've got a poem from that time that kind of highlights it. When I read this poem, I, you know, it takes me right back to the time and it's quite childish in nature. I suppose it's sort of bouncy, but it's very dark. So it's called The Terror. And Terror, when I read it now, I realise it's not just about what it's about, like the other writing. The Terror for me was almost me. It was the BDD. It was the body dysmorphic disorder inside of me kind of taking over me. So, for me, so if you listen to it from that point of view, that's what it's really about. Yeah. So... I am the terror that hides from the lion. I am the darkness that lives in the night. The beast that's too strong if you put up a fight. The petrified force that will freeze you with fright. I'm the touch on your hand as you sit on the chair. I'm the breath on the mirror when you wash your hair. I'm the creak in the boards and the foot on the stair. I'm the knock at the door when there's nobody there. I'm the creature that hides in the cupboard you fear. And when the wind blows, it is me that you hit. I'm the fog on the landing while outside it's clear. I'm the kiss on your cheek when you feel someone near. I'm there in the corner when you're lost in a book. I stare for a while, then I'm gone when you look. I'll hide in a cranny as you search in a nook. And I won't give you back all the things I took. I'm the shadow behind you, in silence I creep. I am the boo that makes you scared to peep. The figure that haunts you in dreams as you sleep. The thing that you can't tell your mum as you weep. I'll lead you so easy 
if you're easily led. I'll live in your room, but I'll stay in your head. And why are you afraid to look under your bed? And one day I'll come out and I'll drag you there, dead. Ooh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty. Aside from the fact that it's just fantastic writing, fantastic writing, it's it's very heavy, heavy and light. Like like you said, the the bounciness of of the writing and the way that you that you say it is bouncy, but what you're saying is so dark. But it's brilliant. I'm sure anyone listening to this is going. That's really heavy, but beautifully written, <laughs> like really cleverly written at the same time. Again, this is when you're young. Yeah, I didn't always write like that in a bouncy way. I wrote differently, and, and it's strange because at school, and I don't know why, because you'd expect English teachers would be different, but we were, we, we were kind of taught to write in a certain way. Like I remember one time I wrote about um, this soldier, but from the point of view of the soldier, and I wrote kind of an epilogue to the whole poem, and the teacher said to me, well, do you know that soldier? And I'm like, oh, no. And they're like, well, you know, shouldn't have that end bit then. It's a bit disrespectful. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm playing a role here. And, and I think that's the great thing about writing as well. As an escape, you can play a role. You can play many roles, you know, or you can play the many roles or the many parts of yourself as well, which again takes us back to the book I'm going to go back to, which I'm playing many roles. I'm playing the many versions of myself, you know, but... There was another thing I used to do with the BDD. I used to watch the worst programs for me. I used to watch things like, do you remember Beverly Hills 90210? Um, Melrose Place. Everybody is amazingly beautiful and good looking. You know, like if you're comparing yourself to, to those people all the time, you're always going to put yourself down. But one amazing thing came from that. So I used to write differently. A lot of it was very meandering and stuff like that. And we've kind of been taught that poetry should be a certain way, kind of like bouncy, really, rhymy. And there was this one episode of Melrose Place. And one of the main guys, I think his name was Jake, he was sort of on off dating one of, one of the women from it. He read her this poem by a guy called um, William Carlos Williams. And it's called The Dance. Okay. And I actually have it here. Can I read it for you? And I would say that this poem was the biggest influence on my writing. Not in a way that I kind of copied it or anything, but just in a way that it was kind of confirmation that, you know, or another confirmation that maybe I can do this. I mean, I'd had, I'd had poetry published at school as well before that, so that was another confirmation. And this was just like, wow, this guy writes a bit like me. Um, so I read this. When the snow falls, the flakes spin upon the long axis that concerns the most intimately. Two and two to make a dance. The mind dances with itself. Taking you by the hand, your lover follows. There are always two, yourself and the other. The point of your shoe setting the pace. If you break away and run, the dance is over. Breathlessly, you will take another partner, better or worse, who will keep at your side, at the stops, whirls and glides until he too leaves off on his own way, down as if there were another direction. Gayer, more carefree, spinning face to face but always down with each other secure, only in each other's arms. But only the dance is sure. Make it your own, who can tell what is to come of it. In the woods of your own nature, whatever twig interposes, the bare twigs have an actuality of their own. This flurry of the storm that holds us, plays with us and discards us. Dancing, dancing as may be credible. And that was like, I was writing a lot of stuff like that at, at the time that was sort of meandering. It didn't rhyme, it was just... You know, it was very, you had to imagine what was going on in your head kind of thing, you know, rather than yeah. spelling it out for you. And that was a massive influence on me. And after that, I'd made, I started going out in the end. I went to, I started going to a local record shop, always loved music. I mean, I loved the romantic music from the 80s as well. Like that whole period in the 80s that we were talking about, you know, I, my crush. Oh, I'm an 80s girl. I'm with you. Yeah, that's why I said, <laughs> is it the time or is it the age you were? I mean, my crushes were... Again, I had sort of counter crushes. So I had um, Jamie Gertz from The Lost Boys. And I had Ioni Sky from uh, Jimmy Reardon, Rachel Papers. And they were kind of my kind of sort of wild kind of vixen-like crushes. But then I had Elizabeth Shue <laughs> as well. Do you remember from Cocktail? 
yeah. also the Karate Kid and Adventures in Babysitting. So she was my girl next door kind of crush. So I, I always had that kind of those two different things going on, you know. And um, I totally lost where I was going with this. And so around that time, <laughs> so I'm back, I'm back. So around that time, I started going to a record shop and I made some new friends there. And again, another confirmation was from my friend's mum. And she was always into theatre and stuff because she had relations, I think were quite high up in Sylvia Young Theatre School in London. So we knew a lot about that kind of thing. She'd always been involved in that. And she was like, wow, you're writing. Because I started sharing my writing. This is the thing. The more confident I got and the more I had sort of felt I had friends around me, the more I I would share my writing. And she's like, wow, that's amazing. And, and her input made me go to try and um, study English at college. So I turn up, and this again, this is another massive confirmation. So I turn up there and I didn't realise, because like I say, at school, I just couldn't concentrate. I mean, I, I had really great SAT scores and stuff like that. And teachers were saying to my mum and dad at parents evening, like, we don't understand what's happening with him because his SAT scores is a genius. And then he's not functioning in class. And he's, he, we don't know why. And that was why. But I never, I didn't tell anyone. So I get to the, I get to like the admissions day. There was a big admissions day. And it turns out I didn't have the coursework grade. Because I just didn't do the coursework. Had the exam grade, but not the coursework. Oh. And, um, but then I showed some poetry. And the guy I was speaking to was like, wait there a minute. So he goes, he goes and gets this other guy, like the head of English. And the other guy comes over and he starts reading my stuff. And he's like, he's looking at me and he's reading my stuff. And he's like, I want you on my course. You can do a makeup exam for the coursework um, that you haven't got the grade for. You'll walk it. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I didn't the first time. But okay. Like, you know, just doing a few bits of coursework because <laughs> I didn't do enough, basically. That was the thing. And he's like, but I want you yeah. on the course. So that was massive yeah. for me. I mean, I didn't stay on the course. Um, and I look at that almost like a good thing now. The reason I didn't stay on the course, so the friends that I'd made, I chose friendship, basically. Um, I was staying away from home, and I was staying near to I had a sister, and me and her children were almost really close. Like, we would go on holiday with them, so I associated them with that as well. And so, I, you know, I was, in, I was with people that I liked, but there was one Christmas, and I've always loved Christmas. I mean, Christmas is just such the perfect time of year for me. And because my friend's family lived, lived near, so my friends from my hometown, they came and collected me and they took me back. And I just, I realized something I hadn't realized before that these people really missed me, you know? And so rather than choose a career in writing back then, which I maybe could have had, I chose friendship. I just came back and I just, I just chose that. And then, you know, things were better for a while and then, you know, definitely mentally, just knowing that I had that support and I helped, um, I helped one of my friends with an audition. I mean, that was as close as I got in the end. Because when I was at school, because there were the two things going on, um, one thing that happened was there was a film crew came back at school to do a documentary about school leavers. And my time at the holiday camps was kind of spilling over a little bit into school. Like I'd come back and I had these shirts with like flowers on the collar. You know, and I was getting to the point where yeah. I was thinking, you know, it's getting to the end of school. I, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to be who I want to be. And this, this documentary team came to the school and they literally picked me for this documentary because of stuff like that, because I was doing stand-up comedy and flowers. And um, so they started following me around at the holiday camp as well. And people called me Mr. Famous, stuff like that, but in a nice way, you know, for once. But the documentary came out and that kind of... There were some things they filmed where, like, they were filming jokes and stuff like that, and they didn't. Then they cut, and so it made no sense. So that became another thing in the end that I got teased about. So all these like dreams I had, I was going to theatre school. That's what I was going to do, and it just having them walking around my hometown and having people tease me about the documentary. When in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'll show you. I'm going to go and do this. I don't care about school anymore. I suddenly did care again and that dream went and the closest I got to it was helping my friend for a couple of auditions with the Sylvia Young Theatre School and then he got it. We did Oliver Twist yeah. and, um, 
Uh, we did this little hat twirl and stuff, and I helped him choreograph. Obviously, I'm not a choreographer, but it was great to work on that. But as I say, I chose. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I mean, yeah, I, I kind of, I don't know if I lost aspirations to do that kind of thing or if it was just sort of taken away from me. And I just never went back to it because, you know, around that time, the writing was still quite dark, but I, but I was writing. And then having the friendships, though, and knowing I had that support, because I always think that's so important to have that support network, no matter what you're doing. I mean, you know, not necessarily to choose friendship over everything else, but I was at a different point in my life to maybe what someone else would be. But that support became a springboard. I mean, I probably wasn't ready to do the other things anyway. That became a springboard. And after that, I was able to have like relationships, like, you know, um, romantic relationships and stuff like that, which I couldn't have had without finally believing that there were people that liked me, that, you know, liked me so much to say, oh, I missed you. You know, we wish you hadn't gone there, you know, that kind of thing. It's fair to say that my relationships after that weren't always amazing. I, I wasn't, and I think this is important as well, that you need to, you need to get to a certain position when you're really ready for a relationship. Otherwise, you're going to damage yourself. You're going to damage other people. You know, you, you've, got to, you've got to work on yourself first, I think, and be happy in your world before you bring somebody else in. I mean, obviously, loads of people don't do that. And I've got, you know, from that point onwards, so I, I could do friendship. I was fine with friendship, had that sorted. Um, people liked me. I knew people liked me. But relationships, it was always a case of I could be something for a little while, but it wasn't real. It was kind of a facade. So it always kind of crumbled oh. away. And again, I was writing a lot of this time about how I felt. I never had a journal. I wish I did keep a journal for the happy times as well, because the, the times that were most emotional that I was writing about seemed to all be like the sad times. So I had a relationship with a girl called Ivana and Ivana was very creative. And some of my deepest relationships I've learned most from and got the best poetry from have been with people that are also creative. You know, we used to make things together. I used to write for her and stuff like that. And, but the relationship with Ivana, you know, they always say that the poet needs the pain, that the best writing comes from, comes from pain, basically. And so scientifically, physical pain and, and emotional pain are processed in the same areas. So when you like say, oh, I feel hurt, according to your mind, you genuinely do feel hurt. It's exactly the same. And likewise, um, the same pleasure areas in the brain that are stimulated through behavioral and drug addictions are stimulated when you're in love. And yeah. so that's the upside, the euphoria side, the, the constantly thinking about them, mm. the intrusive thoughts, stuff like that. And that's great when it's going well. But when it's not going well, and it turns into a rejection, you also get the same withdrawal symptoms that you would from a behavioral addiction, right. drug addiction. So there's the kind of not sleeping right, again, the intrusive thoughts, kind of thinking mm. about them all day, how can I get them back, what did I did wrong, that kind of thing. And that, yeah. at the time, that was horrible. Looking back at it now, now I have like these kind of snapshots of it, it's more beautiful do you know what I mean? because i think again as a writer what what you need to look for the beauty in the world it's good to look for the beauty in the world but what is the beauty in the world isn't always what's so obvious you know there, there's beauty in the world yeah. but it's not perfect beauty you know so there's two mm. different things it's looking for perfection it's looking for beauty yeah and there can be beauty in tragedy you know there can beauty can be beauty in a love story that goes wrong so I'm going to read you a few things that will show how I was feeling back then. This is Moonlight of Your Beauty. In movie Melancholia, we met amidst the cascades of my warmest summer awakenings that finally arrived on the eve that my teenage years were threatening to fade into an eerie and empty darkness. And I stood like a shadow, starstruck beneath the moonlight of your beauty. With plagiaristic irony, our passions burnt from one another neath the half-baked rays of an intercontinental sun that had lost all its power to shine. And in my thoughts, we rode on horseback through ways of lustful shores to forbidden islands where all of my dreams came true by candlelight. And then the beautiful princess kissed the homely toad and inside her arms, he felt like he was a prince. 
We said goodbye that night, but it wasn't yet the end. And we started to write to each other in a language we could both express our deepest inner feelings. But you wouldn't understand. Love. I'd heard it said somewhere, but probably only on some throwaway, over-nostalgic Sunday morning teenage drama, that if you really love someone, you have to set them free. Then if their love for you is real, they will find a way to fill the void. And for a while, when we stopped talking, I had only these empty letter words to hold on to. The weeks passed long and slow, as if the quiet days and lonely nights had all merged into one. Time was nothing now except a healer. But I learned that time can really do this, and that for once, the all-knowing they were actually telling the truth. And then, on a dirty night in November, there was a single knock at my door, and when I opened it, you were standing in front of me. I never knew why you came that night, and I was always too scared to ask. But in the end, it was simply enough that you did. It was raining outside, and though you were soaking wet, you had this dry, sobering look about you that would soon wash away my tired, intoxicated fears. I turned off the light and reached for you as you stopped me and pushed me backward toward my makeshift bed. Your cold hand wrapped warm around my wrist as we paused for a double heartbeat before you let me go. Your eyes still holding on to me in an ambient embrace that had no vivid colour, yet gave hazy focus to mine. My mind and my body were spinning, and I was sent deftly and dizzily to the mattress. And then you fell next to me and landed in my arms. By the following morning, you had moved yourself in, moved into my very soul. And I would have locked up the door right behind you, but you had just stolen the key. I'm always fascinated by a writer's mind because you just think differently. I mean, maybe it has come from pain. Maybe it has to. Maybe that you have to really, really understand the difference between the light and shade of life. I remember we shared a house some years ago. How many years ago was that? 13, no, 12. And you were were writing and you would be in your room. Sometimes it felt like it was days. Maybe you'd come come upstairs for food. I think I remember, but mostly you were in your room writing. I mean, somebody that's been a guest recently, you know, he had very specific... Um, structured days where I write, then I have lunch, then I write and that that's my day done. But you were writing and you didn't stop until you were happy with it. Or or were you resting, but you were just like needing to stay in your your sort of domain? No, no, you're right. When you say happy with it, I think I would describe that as happy with it being fulfilling the role. I mean, also, I am really... OCD about it. I don't like using the same words twice and the same thing if I can help it. You know that stuff we've done together. Yes, I um, know that. I know that. <laughs> I think it's almost like a mind puzzle sometimes. But that's the second stage. The first stage is being the role. And to be the role, I need to shut myself away and feel these feelings again. Because, you know, like I say, that it's not nice to feel that way. But now looking back at it, I can isolate myself make myself feel that way again and then write that but I need to stay in that cocoon while I write it for it to be right for for each character or each part of myself that I'm trying to portray otherwise it's just not going to sound right and I I don't know if this is the right way to write or not I mean I've I own two books uh High Fidelity and The Rachel Papers and both from the 80s by the way based on 80s movies and the reason I own them it's because I wanted to know how they write um, dialogue between characters. And I haven't even writ- read those books yet. They're just there. I, so like I said to you before, I just wasn't reading at one point. And then, you know, I got lots of confirmation that I seemed to be on the right track, like the poem I read, the dance. And then I did a philosophy course. And we learned about Paul Cézanne. And Paul Cézanne was a, a famous artist. And... At the time, art was very real to life. You know, it was, it was that kind of era where everything looked exactly like it. Incredible. And he went off, literally went off on his own. It's like a, a myth and slope, I think is the word for it. And he went off and just painted his own way. And compared to like how everybody was painting, it's just rubbish. It was shapes. He used to paint his mountains all the time. But if Paul Cézanne hadn't gone off and done that, 
there would be no break off, or at least it would have happened later between the art of then and the modern art. I mean, both both Picasso and Matisse call uh, Paul Cezanne the father of modern art. They, they literally say, really? there's no Paul Cezanne, we don't exist. Modern art is not how you see it now. And he did that just because he went off and he did stuff his own way, like totally different from what he'd been taught. So when I read that, I thought, you know what? I've got one chance to write some things my way. They might sound like someone else, but, you know, I don't know that. Obviously, there's influences. As you can tell already, I'm influenced by movies, by TV series, by pop music, stuff like that. So I do have influences, of course. But I have this one chance to go and write a book how I think it should be written, or multiple books. And I want to take that chance. Then maybe in the future, I'll go back and I study how you should write a book. But because I've never read so much, I've got this one chance, even like I'm nearly 50 years old, of doing stuff my own way and maybe discovering something that is different to other people. Like when the guy at college all those years ago said that I want you on the course, he, he literally said to me, you've got away with words. Like it's different. And, and at the time, I just, I, I don't know if it's you don't see your own talent, but writing to me seems like something that most people can do. You know, it's just writing, isn't it? Or it seemed like that for a long time. And I think I've had a lot of confirmation over the years, not least from, from yourself. I mean, I have a, a stationary case that you got me very recently that says this belongs to an awesome writer. Um, so yeah. <laughs> and not only that, um, the fact that we're even doing this show, because you haven't, you haven't heard any of this. You know, all this stuff I'm reading to you. So we're doing this show and it's very close to the date that it's going to be broadcast. And you have put this 100% faith in the fact that, because you know I was going to read you a little bit of the writing stuff, and you've put 100% faith in the fact that you're going to think it's good. You know, so stuff like that, that's huge for me, you know, that someone doesn't even need to read what I've got to read. And they're trusting me, like, like this, this will be the Valentine's show, you know, and just go off and do it. But I didn't even need, I mean, I've heard a few um, pieces, I've read a few bits over the years, nothing that you've read today. But it is the way, even the way that you, even the way that you speak. I just thought if, if he writes the way he speaks, then it's already going to be phenomenal. Because like the conversations that we've had over the years, it can go really deep. But I think it's really, really nice to have that kind of connection with someone where you don't, you're not, like you're not afraid to show your vulnerability. Yeah. And I love that. And I think that when people are saying, oh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm too afraid to face something or I just want to shy away from something. I can't show my vulnerability. You know, why not write? Yeah. Why not express your real vulnerability? Which, by the way, if you express it, let alone say it, that's a strength. And that's you owning up to, you know, this is, this is how I was then and you're comparing it to now. This is the impact that bullying has had on me yeah. and this is where I am now. And you can compare, you know, it's like journaling. You know, I'm, I've only started journaling recently. But the impact of that, to recognize, to have that self-awareness. And I think having that from a young age, a teenager, writing in that way of it's just such self-awareness. And it's magic. It really is. I mean, I hope that anyone listening today is going, you know, maybe I should do some journaling. Yeah. Maybe I should become, um, like, find a way to express how I'm really feeling and getting it down on paper. Because I don't think enough people do it. I'm not saying there's going to be lots of writers now coming up, but find a way to write your true feelings, even if it doesn't make sense. But, you know, like, going with it. It's a great way to find yourself. And, and like, my memory is not great. And, like, over the years, because of the BDD, I've never taken many photos. I mean, something I've started doing now my my mum passed recently i lost my dad a few years ago and i realized that i don't have tons and tons of memories of them so i've literally i've got a file on my computer now where i've started writing things down and because you set your mind off on that path i'm now passing places that i've passed a thousand times but because my mind is thinking that way like that's its little mission in the background 
all of a sudden, places that never reminded me of anything are reminding me of memories that I totally forgot I had. Yeah. Like they're in there somewhere, and it's just finding a way to unlock them. And, and I mean, with mm. the with the deepness of the writing stuff, it got. I can literally tell where I was at emotionally in my life by the writing. Like so, after Ivana, I had a couple of more. They were sort of girl next door relationships. I always, I did always like go back and revert to a girl next door. I'm married to a girl next door at the moment, as you know. Um, and I may even love the movie The Girl Next Door. Do you remember the Alicia Cuthbert one from like my favorites? That's got the my favorite <laughs> of any movie. I think there's the point where she's talking to a guy and he gets up the courage to go over. And David Gray's This Year's Love is playing. And he just walks over, turns around and kisses her. I love that scene. And I, a little bit later, in my mid-20s, I kind of finally had the girl-next-door relationship. And then all the poetry got much more light and more bouncy again, really. So I'll read you a couple of those so that you can, you yes, can totally see where, how differently I, I was thinking about the world. So this is called Sunrise. 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 Sun wake up, sunrise. Sun shine like a jewel over opulent skies. Sunrise, sunrise. Sun wake up, sunrise. Sun wipe the tears from the world as she cries. Sun look at me with that warmth in your eyes. Sunrise, sunrise. Sun wake up and sunrise. Sun come to see me, for I missed you last night. Sun glide, sun glide. Sun sparkle and sun ride. Sun down through my window and I'll let you inside. Some close up my shutter and together we'll hide. Some take me to islands with diamond laid beaches. Some climb a mountain as high as it reaches. Some chant, some romance. Let us walk on the shore. Some open me up. What's inside me is yours. Some dance. Drench my lips. Let your kisses mark treasure. Some buried in sand. Let us stay there forever. So it was all, you know, it was really like, Sort of, and a lot of it is like that from that period. So I had two relationships, lovely girls. What happened was I kind of, BDD brings with it a type of perfectionism. So you don't just critique the way you look, you critique sort of everything. And I started doing, I had a lovely job and it was a creative job. I used to design and make cake decorations and I loved it. And I was manager and I was, you know, looking after people and stuff. We had a great team and Again, friendship, you know, we'd all go out together. I remember we'd, we'd come back some nights because we used to have to pipe things on, on, on some of the decorations. Oh, yeah, yeah. We would go out, and my, my bosses never knew this, so if they ever listened to this, I'm probably still going to be in trouble this year, so I had lovely bosses. And um, we'd come back at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, and we'd been out to a club night, and me and, like, because I used to work with my friends, and they'd be like, oh, we can't pipe, John. Like, can you teach us? And I'd be like, oh, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, yeah, want to learn. So we'd go there two o'clock in the night, you know, in the morning. And by the Monday, they'd all be able to pipe. You know, they'd all be able to pipe stuff. So I had that going on. And then I decided to leave that and study computing, um, like networking. Like I just thought it'd be a better job. Like I really wanted a family at that point. I was with a girl that I was engaged. I absolutely adored her. And I just thought it'd be a better life for us. And what I discovered was the thing with a manufacturing job was that everything needed to be done and then you have to let it go. You can't perfect it. It's just, it is what it is. It's as good as it's going to be and it's gone. And they've put the perfect jobs for somebody. Because BDD is like, it's almost like a mental illness. It's always going to be there in the background. I'm really protective of myself with it, even now, because I know it's kind of there. As much as I know about psychology, as much as I know about all that stuff, I know it lives there. You know, it's still, something can set it off. And I'm really careful. And, um, the computer stuff, there's like an endless amount of stuff that you could learn. So I just dug into it. And I remember we were going out and I was taking my computer with me on weekends away and stuff. Just Yeah, just learning wow. more. I yeah. couldn't control it. I couldn't stop myself. It was that level of perfectionism. And so we broke up. And, you know, for me, she was going to be the one. Like, we were going to have a family and everything. And I really, that's when I really entered this time of proper self-discovery. It was just like, you know, I had this amazing relationship. I killed it. And it was like, I felt like not in control of myself, you know, and like what caused that? So that was what I'd always read stuff about psychology. It always interested me. Partly, I guess, as a like, self-protection, knowing what people might be thinking, yeah. stuff like that. But at this point, I'm like, well, I'm going to figure out what's going on. And I realized it was BDD. I'd never been um, diagnosed with BDD. 
not properly, but looking back at my life, 100% really did. So then I was able to sort of figure out, figure it out, you know, and that set me off on a path that basically led to London to meeting you. And sort of in between that, I did an NLP course. I did an NLP course with one of the founders of NLP, John Brinder. And, and even then I got, because I could, back that I could make, I knew I could make friends, people like me. And that the thing that I never understood about myself, I like about myself now most is that people do seem to open up to me. People do seem to want to talk to me. You know, I've been, I'm, I live in Brazil and my Portuguese isn't perfect because my wife's an English teacher. So imagine she teaches people <laughs> Portuguese during the day. She doesn't want to, sorry, English during the day. She doesn't want to then teach me. And I've, you know, I've always got projects going on and stuff like that. But even then, we've been in theme parks and I'm quite clearly not Brazilian. And people, I've been in queues and people have come over and chose to ask me directions rather than people around me. And it's just like, I just must have one of those. And I, and I've, I never realized at the time that people just think I'm approachable. Like I've got friends, we've got a mutual friend called Mark. And Mark always said about, says about me that I radiate warmth, whatever that means, that it, I just radiate yeah. it, that it just kind of comes from me. And all those things, I was, I never, with the BDD before, I never noticed them. I never noticed their value. I sort of, you know, I'd be on my own. And so the stuff that we used to do, like help other people that we first met doing, like I, I loved doing that. And I realized that I could yeah. do that. But on the way, I had this sort of journey of self-discovery. And so even on the NLP course, um, we had to write something sort of sensory. Now, bear in mind at this time, it wasn't just a discovery of what was wrong with me or who I was. It was also kind of a bit of a, sexual awakening going on as well like quite quite late but i mean you know i slept with people before but i wasn't i was never really that kind of being you know and again having that base level friendship building on that oh i can have a relationship oh now i'm ready to be this person so it's like maslow's hierarchy of needs but different you know it's a different hierarchy of, of kind of expression i guess in a way of self-expression of who who can i be you know discovering who i'm capable to be so I read this poem that I wrote on the NLP course, actually. And like, you know, I still haven't okay. performed it. And like, everybody's saying, wow, it's amazing. So again, it was another, I've had a lot of periods like that, you know, like I've said, where I feel like I'm on the right track without actually knowing I'm on mm. the right track. So it's called Cascade. I stand there naked and vulnerable, shivering in still anticipation as I close my eyes tightly and reach out my hand for you. And water falls cascading down my body. You touch me once, I shiver down my spine and catch my breath and turn the sun to face me and hold you close to feel your warmth divine. And waterfalls cascading down my body, I feel your kiss wet on my lips and twine. And waterfalls, I breathe in deep to taste you, refreshing on my tongue, your zest sublime. And waterfalls cascading down my body, absorbing me, your echo all around. And waterfalls, when I get lost beneath you, I find myself awakened by the sound. And water falls cascading down my body, aroma bringing paradise to mind, and takes me back to shores where I have bathed you. But feelings fade as I open my eyes. So that's just, it's a light, literally about a shower, where I had to do something sensory, it's just that. But you can see how I'm changing as the poetry's changing, and there's a sort of progression. You know? Yeah. I'm sort of opening up. I'm really I love that. To be something else. Amazing writing. So let's go on to some valentine's stuff because i know that you have you have something from valentine's don't you and as it is a valentine's special <laughs> yeah so um i mean i have a tip as well because obviously you know the background we come from is helping helping people you know make you know kind of amazing how i ended up from where i am to where i am kind of helping guys with their confidence and going out meeting and attracting women and stuff like that so so first i have, a, I have kind of a tip and the, the tip is, well, kind of something we spoke about really, which is make sure that you're happy with yourself before you bring someone else into your world. So that's tip number one. Like, you know, don't, don't kind of, you can tell, you can tell when you're not ready for a relationship, you know, be honest with yourself because you're going to cause yourself more damage and you're going to cause other people damage as well. And the, the second tip is a little bit contrary to that. It's once you are somewhere that, that you're happy, is not to make other people's decisions for them. You know, I did that a lot in the past, especially with the BDD. I thought I was a certain way. I acted like I was a certain way. You know, there were, 
there are whole studies that have been done where people have gone out thinking they've got a scar on their head when actually the makeup artist has removed the scar at the end and they've gone out acting like there's a scar on their head and they come back and the, you know the interviewer will say well how did it go oh terrible they didn't stop looking at my scar and then they'll show them themselves in the mirror and the scar they thought was there wasn't and they've just gone out projecting that into the world so massive is don't make other people's decisions for them if you're happy with it where you are and you find someone that you're attracted to don't assume you're not good enough for them their job's too good they've got too much money. anything don't make their decisions for them you know let them make the decision absolutely go out there just put mm. yourself out there okay so so that's that that's the um that's the sort of proper sensible advice now i've written um, <laughs> some valentine's times um Use them at your own risk, but they are, I wrote them especially for the show, but they're, they're, they're funny. They're a little bit different. So the first one is, now I reckon it'd be pretty sweet if we went out for a bite to eat. We could go to that Asian place right next to mine if you say you'll be my valentine. Now, this one you have to write, because you have to write Thai, T-H-A-I with an underline. So that, that's that one. That's, that's a written one. So that's that one. And then we got, I hope that I don't sound like a creep. I've been watching you, but not while you sleep. Though I'd like to get much closer, if that's not a crime, will you be my stalker, Valentine? So, so, <laughs> so again, I'm not sure if that's how you'd want to come across. You have to know this person before yeah, you send that, by the way. <laughs> then we got, um, we got a rose of the red one. We've got rose of the red and violets of blue. And that's largely due to the antiocinamins carotenoids and other pigment types that are built and controlled by a series of chemical reactions within the flower cells. P.S. Will you be my geeky <laughs> valentine? <laughs> so, so, I love that. That's funny. So we got that one. <laughs> and then we got, um, so then we got a couple, being as it's Valentine's Day, we got a couple based on movies. So I think you'll recognize the movies. Maybe you can guess at the end, like a little game. So okay. pardon me for not being discreet. I think you're a pretty woman. Though not from the streets. And I don't expect your kisses. On that, I'm quite sincere. But I'll climb up to your balcony and be your Richard Gear. So, oh, so, I love that. Well, it's obviously Pretty Woman. I mean, it's yeah, like my favourite. The last one. You might have to join me at the end here. I think you're going to figure out where it's going. Then you can, you can join me. At okay. The end. So it's the 14th of Feb. And I just had to warn you that nobody puts my baby in the corner. So I'll take you by the hand if you don't mind me asking. We'll head out to the floor and do some dirty dancing. Don't worry, though. I'm not looking for a wife, but I'll lift you up and spin you. And you'll have the time of your life. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's, so, that's, so, so would that be a voice note one, then? That would be a voice note I message. A voice I mean, I'll let you know. Unless yeah. the guy's quiet. Quite little, and you really think you lift the guy because they're going to imagine this. But but it could be funny, couldn't it? I think it could be really funny from a girl to a guy for that reason. Like you know, and then it, you know. Oh, but, so I do have one, one more, and I've um again, again I wrote this many years ago, but it seems especially poignant to to your amazing podcast and what you're trying to achieve. So it's called the dance. She stands there motionless, her head bowed downward, waiting for the music to start. And when it does, although so different, she'll begin to dance the same way that everybody else is dancing. Movement for movement, rhythm for rhythm. Every speechless word synchronized perfectly to every speechless word. Dance your own dance. The stage is vast and there's room enough for everybody to be themselves. Be yourself. Find out who you can be and be exactly who you want to be. Even if it's not what's expected of you. Especially if it's not what's expected of you especially if people expect things of you. Pick a partner. Pick a partner from a thousand hopefuls. Audition them well. And never forget your supporting cast. The right ones will be there for you when you need them the most. Make the most of them. Use them. Use them especially when you feel like you're dancing on your own. Use them. And never be alone for so long that you feel lonely. Use them, but never let them feel used. Do use your time though. Take time out. Take time for yourself but always use it to its fullest. Unlike your friendships, you can never get it back again. Rest. Rest by all means if you need to unwind and recharge, but never sit on the sidelines for so long that you grow tired and weary. 
Never grow tired and weary, but always remember to grow. Then keep on growing upwards until you're standing tall and straight. But never get so straight-laced that you just stand there and watch while others around you are up on the dance floor and doing the funky chicken. Join them. Don't be afraid to feel embarrassed. And don't be embarrassed if sometimes you're feeling afraid. But do know that if you're being yourself, you'll never have any reason to truly be afraid. So dance your way. Dance always. And always remember to dance. That's that. Oh, I love that, John. What a way to wrap it up as well. We'll wrap it up. And I have got a little something for you. It's lost a few leaves in transition, but I put that down to the currency exchange, you know, but it's very nice. (laughs) I love it. The power of technology. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Your writing is wonderful. And I think a lot of people are going to feel inspired to start to document their feelings and express themselves more and hopefully express themselves more in relationships. and. Yeah, you know, sure. what better way than Valentine's Day to actually say how you're feeling. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Candice. Thank, thank you, John. Thank you so much, John. For those of you listening and not watching, John gave me a rose that got transported through the computer from Brazil. The power of technology, people. <laughs> I think you can agree that John is such an incredible writer and what an honor it was to share his experience with body dysmorphic disorder. For the next show, we go back to the cabaret industry with an exceptional performer. So make sure you stay tuned for that one. Please also keep supporting by clicking the subscribe button as it really, really does help. May your Valentines be filled with love, especially love for yourself.